guest pianist today, Audrey Irvin. She is the daughter of Eric and Jana Hirschfeld. So we thank you for coming here and helping us out with the musical portion of her service. have several announcements this morning before we start our service. You'll notice we have two roses on the altar this morning. They are in honor of Roger and Mary Lee Eversman, and also Robert and Joanne Wilkins. Both couples will be celebrating 62 years of marriage today. So congratulations to both of you. Forty-day prayer covenant kicks off today. Later in our service, Pastor Joel will be sharing more about that to us. And there are several announcements from our youth, and at this time I'd like to have Tori come forward. Good morning. Just a couple announcements. Students, tonight at 8.30, we are gathering here, and we're going to be playing night games and having pizza. Um, So if you're around and you want to come run around like hooligans, come on over. (laughs) So that's tonight at 8.30. Um, And then also, this after after service, immediately following the service, is our youth alignment team update. And this meeting is for everyone. And so if you don't have kids or if you have little kids that are eventually going to be in our youth ministry, we want you to come to this because we are going to be talking about uh, the new structure, new leadership things going on in our youth ministry um, and things that will hopefully carry us for years to come. Uh, so this meeting is for everyone. We will have donuts and coffee, and it will be 30 minutes max. Um, so we don't want to take up a lot of your time, but we want to update you on what we've been doing um, and the exciting new direction that we are going to we're going to be heading in. So if you could come on over to the ministry center afterwards, um, grab yourself a donut and a cup of coffee, and sit down and enjoy the meeting. So thank you. Thank you, Tori. There's numerous other announcements in your bulletin. Please take the time to look them over. And now, if you are able, would you please rise and join me this morning in our preparation for worship? This morning is taken from the book of Colossians, chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. If you remain standing, our opening hymn this morning is number 58, This Is My Father's World.
children come forward for the children's chat with Mrs. Rohrball, please take a moment and greet one another. Good morning, everybody. That was lame. Good morning. Oh, that was better. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Oh, that's it. Well, hello. Thank you. Have you ever lost anything before? Yes. Has, has like, mom ever been, like, rushing you around the house and they're like, where are your shoes? And you're like, I have no idea. I have no idea. I have no idea where I left them. I can only find the white one, not the other white one. I have a white one and a blue one. But I have to go to school. There's this one time where, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm the teacher. I have to be on time to school, right? What would you do if your teacher wasn't there? I, ugh, I couldn't find my car keys. Couldn't find them anywhere in my whole house. I had to get the spare key from the lockbox in the... Oh, kids grief. And by the time I got to school, do you know where my keys were? Clipped to my pants. Legit. <sighs> yeah, so that was an unfortunate phone call to Mr. Rohrbaugh to be like, oh, no, I, I found them. And they're literally on my pants. Um, so... Why I tell you this story is uh, because it can be frustrating when we can't find the things that we're looking for. There we go. (laughs) It can be frustrating to not be able to find the things that we're looking for. Uh, In the Bible, the Apostle Paul speaks about people searching for God. And even now, people continue to search for God like he's hard to find. But actually, he's hiding in plain sight, just like my keys stuck to my pants. And uh, in the Bible, on this very small print, uh, wait, I had my glasses. Have you seen my glasses? It's going to be one of those days, y'all. Okay. I know, right? I struggling. Well, usually it's kind of my thing. All right. So it says that God is not far from any of us, for in him we live and move and we have our being. Paul reminds us that God made the world and all the things in it. and We are God's children. We don't need to search far and wide to find God. The Bible teaches us to be quiet and listen and pray. And when you accept God's love, it is with you always. So, when things are hard to find, when it's frustrating and you're busy and you're like, ah, sometimes if you just calm down and look at your belt, you'll find your keys. Okay, let's pray. Figures, right? It just figures. See, your parents are awesome. (laughs) Let's pray. Lord, help us to learn to be still. Help us to learn to find you where you are. And if we're just quiet enough and we just close our eyes and listen, we'll find you. Help us to listen and learn where you are. Amen. Thank you very much.
lost in the last weeks in our service. In Vincenzia, Italy, Staff Sergeant Krishan Claiborne, 36, from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. At Fort Bragg, North Carolina, Private First Class Justin Kriska, 24, from St. Louis, Missouri. At Camp Blanding, Florida, Specialist Kalen McLemore, 25, from Memphis, Tennessee. And then hoping for some perspective on events on our southern border and the rest of the country in the recent weeks, I would like to share the following. On November 2nd of 1883, a woman by the name of Emma Lazarus composed this poem called The New Colossus. Not like the brazen giant of Greek fame, with conquering limbs astride from land to land, here at our sea-washed sunset gates shall stand a mighty woman with a torch, whose flame is imprisoned lightning, and her name, Mother of Exiles. From her beacon hand glows worldwide welcome. Her mild eyes command the air-bridged harbor that twin cities frame. Keep ancient lands your storied pomp, cries she with silent lips. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. The wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. And then, on the 20th, Wednesday of this week, the following quotation. I quote, Our ability to imagine ourselves in the shoes of others, to say, quote, There but for the grace of God go I, is part of what makes us human. And to find a way to welcome the refugee and the immigrant, to be big enough and wise enough to uphold our laws and honor our values at the same time, is part of what makes us American. After all, almost all of us were strangers once, too. Barack Obama. Thank you, Jay. I'd like to just follow up with a, a couple comments of my own as well. Unfortunately, it was about a year ago this time that I stood up here and in the wake of what was happening in, in Charlottesville, Virginia, and had to make a very similar statement to what I'm about to make today. But here I am, and, and it's important for us to, to put things into perspective. Um, I want to read a couple passages and just follow up with a, a few brief comments on that. First from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 34. So the Lord speaking to his people, saying, The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native-born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And also from Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 10, he says, "Love, excuse me, Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. 
For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. It's so important for us to remember, especially as Christians, as brothers and sisters in Christ, that all people are created in the image of God and are worthy of of dignity and respect. And see, the problem we often have is that we feel like there's this divide between um, disagreeing with someone and not agreeing with their actions and, and being able to still treat them with compassion. And I'd say that's something that, that we need to get rid of. We need to be able to understand that we may not agree with everything that everybody does. I don't agree with everything I do, much less what other people do, Right. But we can, we can disagree with someone's actions. We can disagree with someone's behavior. We can maybe disagree about what laws are in place in terms of immigration. We can disagree about how things are handled. But yet we can still treat other people with dignity and respect. And that's exactly what we need to do. Um, as brothers and sisters in Christ, it's important for us to come together and, and acknowledge that we may not always agree on everything. We may not always see things eye to eye. But yet we can still love and treat people with the love that God has shown us. And that's so important for us to do. See, it's possible to have, have just law and compassion for those who don't uphold it. And that's so important. And I want to encourage us, I'm not, you know, whatever side of the aisle you fall on when it comes to immigration issues and how those things are handled, the one thing I hope that we can all agree on as brothers and sisters in Christ is that we should treat people with love and kindness and compassion and treat people as image bearers, as people who are created in the image of God, no matter where they come from, where they were born, or what actions they have taken in the last few weeks. We can still treat each other with respect and dignity. And I think that's so important for us to, to remember, you know, we, as, as Christians first, that's our, that needs to be our perspective. And so we can, we can continue to, you know, disagree, agree to disagree on, on how things are handled in terms of the law itself and, and the different perspectives that are there. But we can all agree, I hope, to treat people with the dignity and respect that they deserve. I'd like to take a moment and, and pray uh, about this issue as well as the other issues we have, and then I'd love to take a few moments and talk about the prayer covenant as well. Let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Father, Lord, I pray that you would give us a heart for those that are going through very difficult times right now. I pray you'd give us a heart of compassion for those who are even now experiencing separation, uh, that are having to deal with this issue uh, on, on both sides of the spectrum, Lord. I pray that you would give us compassion for all people, no matter where they're from, no matter what is happening, Lord, um, and no matter what our perspective is on the issue. Lord, give us a heart full of your love, full of compassion, that, that cares deeply for people. And yet, Lord, help us to, as, at the same time, understand that and uphold, Lord, the laws of this land and, and the just laws that are there. And help us to have compassion no matter what our perspective is in this issue. Lord, you are a God who cares, especially for the downcast, especially for the refugee and the, the widow and the orphan. And so I pray you would fill us with that same sort of compassion as well. And Lord, I pray that we would not only be able to 
speak the words about it, but live it out through our actions. Lord, we also lift up other concerns that are before us today. We, we understand, Lord, that there are so many needs right here in our own community, and so we pray that you would be present here as well. Fill us, Lord, with, with your spirit to, to handle and to, to endure whatever obstacles are in our way. And Lord, I pray you'd fill us with compassion for those that are seated here in the same room and that are listening to us on the radio in the, in the problems and issues that they face. Give us compassion for them as well. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be the answer to your prayer. I pray you would use us as a church and as individuals to meet the needs of those around us and those in this world. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Before I ask our uh, ushers to come forward and help with the offering. I do want to take a few moments and, and talk about this prayer covenant. Um, everyone who got a bulletin today should have gotten one of these cards inserted in there. I'd encourage you to take it out and just take a look at it for a moment with me. You can see there's a prayer printed on the front side, and this is meant to be one prayer, but you see it's kind of divided up with different themes for each line of the prayer, beginning with grace and love and compassion. Uh, what we're encouraging us, us to do as a church is to to come together as a church and pray this prayer together for the summer. Um, make a covenant to, to commit to praying this each and every day um, for yourself, but also for at least one other person. Have someone in mind and be praying for them as you go through each line of this prayer. Uh, what, we, what we hope is that this encourages us and, and fosters a commitment to prayer in general and, and that we, as we do this, grow closer to God together. Uh, prayer is such an important thing, and it's something that I know can be so easily neglected. Uh, we get busy, especially in the summer when we got vacations and camping trips and sports camps and all that stuff happening. Uh, our, our, our prayer life can often take a hit because of, of our busy schedule. And so I want to encourage us this summer to really make a commitment to, to go before the Lord in prayer and, and as a church, as a body of Christ, pray this prayer together each and every day. Um, you can see on the back side there's some more information as well, but uh, one of the things that, that I want to encourage us to do is, is, um, is, is, like I said, commit to praying for at least one other person each and every day. And, and as you pray this prayer, you'll see those themes coming up and, and, and becoming, um, you become more aware of those, I guess you could say, in your life. Uh, and, and things like grace and love and compassion and repentance just become more of a reality for you as you focus on prayer and focus on, on going before the Lord on behalf of yourself and another person. I think one of the things that is just a reality for us as a church is that the summer is a, just a really busy time and, and, and we're often a hit and miss when it comes to attendance, right? And that, I'm not saying that to, to make it a guilt trip or anything like that, but that's just the reality is our attendance seems to dip a little bit and, and we're busy with other things that are going on. 
And so I believe this prayer covenant can be a way for us to remain connected as brothers and sisters in Christ, as, as the body of Christ here at First Church. We can, even if we're not physically here each and every week on Sunday mornings, we can be committed to, to praying this alongside the other members of the church and other members of the community who want to be a part of this. And it's a way for us to remain united and remain connected as a body of Christ throughout this, the busy months of the summer. And so you can see there's, this one is in your, um, in your bulletin, uh, but there's also a kid's version. So some of you with young kids that, that may want to pray this prayer with your children, there's actually a, a 40-day prayer covenant for kids, and there's uh, copies of this um, in the front of the church in the pews, as well as the table in the heritage room. And I forget the other place Connie told me. In the back. Yes, at the table back here. Thank you. Um, so if you want to have a version that's a little bit easier to, for kids to understand, and this one comes with a bunch of Bible verses on the back, um, that may be a good resource for you to take and pray alongside with, with your kids. Um, I just think this is going to be a really great way, um, not only as individuals, to cultivate a, a life of prayer and a commitment to prayer, but also to, to do that together as a church. Just imagine what God can do as, as we all commit to praying this prayer uh, together for the, next, for the rest of the summer. We're going to have some uh, stuff on our Facebook page throughout the week, um, probably like on Wednesdays. Uh, there's going to be a post. Um, we already committed to me making a video, like a Facebook Live post, so um, that will be fun. I'm not sure how that's going to go. But talking about each one of these themes, um, this, so this week, look for stuff that uh, on our Facebook page that has to deal with the topic of grace and how we can uh, cultivate a life of prayer and a, and a life of grace uh, throughout this summer. So I want to just encourage you to take that card home with you, stick it in your Bible, stick it in your purse, find a place for it that you'll see it. And as you pray... Um, Commit to praying that for yourself and for another person. And, and uh, I think we're going to see some pretty amazing things happen as we do that. You see there's some resources around. There's some posters that have the prayer printed um, as a way to remind us uh, to, to commit to that. So um, I want to just take a moment and ask God to, to help guide us and, and lead us in that endeavor. And then we'll have the ushers come forward to collect our morning offering. Father, thank you so much uh, for the opportunity to... To commit to prayer, Lord, um, it's something that's so easily neglected in our lives as we become busy. And, and Lord, we don't want that to be the case. We want to be a church that is committed to prayer, that is committed to, to growing in our relationship with you. And so I pray that we would all be able to take this, this commitment, Lord, um, and, and take it to heart. And, and beginning this week, just begin to pray this prayer for ourselves, for another person. And, and as we do that, Lord, I pray that you would grow us in our faith and, and help us to be remain united as a church that is focused solely on you. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Invite those who are helping with the offering to come forward at this time. Thank you. You're going to love this. And call me please Cause I can't find my phone This is the stuff that drives me crazy This is the stuff that's getting to me lately In the middle of my little mess 
I forget how big I'm blessed. This is the stuff that gets under my skin, but I've got to trust. You know exactly what you're doing might not be what I would choose. This is the stuff you I'm blessed. This is the stuff that gets under my skin, but I've got to trust. You know exactly what you're doing might not be what I would choose. This is the stuff you use. So break me of impatience, conquer my frustrations. I've got a new appreciation. It's not the end of the seated. Our scripture reading today comes from Acts 17, verses 16 through 34. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day, with those who happened to be there. A group of Ecuparian and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this blabber trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to the meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? 
You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with the inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands, as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has a set day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof to this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, We want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Thanks, Sam. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much uh, for all that you're doing in and through this church, and I pray that you would uh, be here now. I pray your spirit would guide us as we open your word together, and I pray that you would uh, open our hearts and minds to what you have to say to us today. It's in Christ we pray. Amen. So as Paul was arriving here in Athens, you know, he, he sees this city full of idols and, and it's this text says that it disgusts him. He is, he is really provoked by this idea that, that they're just idols. There's our friend, by the way. I, we forgot to mention that. It's, <laughs> uh, for those listening on the radio, there's a bat flying around by the ceiling. Um, so hopefully he'll just stay away now. That's going to be a distraction. <laughs> well, uh, Paul was quite distracted by all the idols he saw <laughs> in the city of Athens. Uh, see, we, what we have to understand about that day and age is there was no such thing as separation of church and state, right? Religious life was integrated into every aspect of life, whether it was social, economic, political. All of it was just dripping with, with religiosity. Uh, idol worship itself was integrated into practically every area of life. And so pluralism then was the norm. Worship was not exclusive to one God or any particular faith. Any and all gods were welcome. Paul even notices, as he mentions in verse 23, that there was this altar to an unknown God. They were so religious, quote-unquote, that uh, that they were even afraid that they, they missed something. And so therefore, um, man... So therefore, they, uh, uh, wow, <laughs> take a deep breath. 
they were so religious, they were afraid that they were going to leave one of these gods out. And so they, uh, so they had this altar to an unknown god just to cover their bases. And while a city full of idols may seem very strange and out of place to us in modern-day America, pluralism definitely is the norm in our culture. We talked today about the need to be open to and even accept the idea that there are many gods or many ways to God. On the surface, Christianity is an affront, really, to a personal, uh, excuse me, a pluralistic culture. In the Roman Empire, the problem wasn't that Christians worshipped Jesus. The problem was that they worshipped Jesus only. And the same is true today. The gospel is offensive to our society because we worship Jesus. The reason the gospel is offensive today is because that we claim that Jesus is the only God and that he is the only way to God. That is why the gospel is a hard pill to swallow for many people. How could an all-loving, all-powerful God only offer one path of salvation? You see, that's the wrong question. That assumes that all people are really innocent and in danger of a faith they don't deserve. I think the better question is, why would God offer salvation at all, especially to people who don't deserve it? But the good news is that God does offer salvation through Jesus Christ, and we should praise him that he has chosen to rescue us. After speaking in the synagogue in the marketplace, Paul eventually goes and he gains an audience in front of the philosophers at the Areopagus, or, or some of your translations say Mars Hill. Up until this point, the Jews and God-fearers were Paul's main audience, but now he has an opportunity to speak into the lives of these pagan philosophers, people who had really no previous knowledge of, of Judaism and what God had been up to. And these philosophers, these Epicureans and the Stoics, they really represented kind of the broad spectrum of, of thought before Christianity became the norm. See, on one hand, the Epicureans, they pursued a life of pleasure, and, and a pain-free life was the goal at all costs. And the Stoics, on the other hand, they kind of just accepted life as it came to them, and their main focus was to endure whatever life had to throw at them through self-sufficiency and, and, and just taking, uh, excuse me, playing the cards that were dealt to them. And so the Christian, really, the, the gospel confronts the cultural norms and points to a better way to deal with life's problems. The Christian doesn't run from pain, nor does the Christian simply play the hand they're dealt. The Christian can point to a greater reality of a living God and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. See, God is the author and sustainer of life, and ultimately death itself has no hold over him or us. It has been conquered. All things then work together for his glory and our good. So Paul here, as I mentioned, he, he points out this altar to an unknown God, and he begins his his speech here with, with commendation rather than condemnation. Paul's strong response to idol worship did not lead him to, to look down upon the people of Athens. Rather, he uses their religious nature as a connection point. From there, he is able to share the gospel with them. Later in verse 28, Paul even quotes some of their own poets to make a point. See, he's using the resources that are available to him something that the Greeks already know and using it to point them towards God. He says that this altar to an unknown God is, is already pointing them to the God of Israel. He says this, um, that this is the God he's about to tell them about. This is not to say that the God of Israel is just one of many gods available to us. Rather, he is the only God. He is the one true living God as opposed to the dead and mute idols that they currently worship. See, we can learn a lot about evangelism from Paul's speech here. It's important for us to meet people where they're at 
religiously and culturally. There needs to be some sort of common starting point from which we can then share the gospel. Many people use this method to reach Muslims uh, in, in the Middle East and the Muslim world. Conversions begin, conversations rather, begin with how the Quran portrays Jesus, known as Isa. And once that is flushed out and some common ground is then established, they begin to look at how the Gospels portray Jesus and what the Bible has to say about the Messiah. This approach is both effective and faithful to the truth of Scripture. And while the context of the message may change from place to place and from time to time, the gospel itself never changes. It's the same today as it was 2,000 years ago. And how we communicate it effectively and faithfully may change over time. The gospel itself never changes. Later in his life, Paul talked about the importance of using our freedom in Christ to reach the lost. We must relate to people form a connection with them in order to reach them. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 through 23, Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone, to win as many as possible. To the Jews I become like a Jew, to win the Jews. To those under the law I become like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. And to those not having the law, I become like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I become weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I may save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings." Paul becomes like a Jew when he tries to to preach the gospel to the Jews, and he becomes like a Gentile when he tries to reach people who are Gentiles. You see, he does it all so that in doing so, he might save some. And we may look at this and say, what a hypocrite, right? Why is he he changing his approach here? You see, it's not hypocrisy. It's not inconsistency. Paul is constantly trying to do the one thing that God has called him to do, and that is share the gospel and and the truth of Jesus Christ and the love of God at all costs. The message remains the same, but how he communicates it in particular contexts and at particular times may differ. But the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is the same. Paul says he does it all for the sake of the gospel. He's not compromising it, he's proclaiming it. And that's exactly what he's doing here in this passage. And there's, there's three things that he highlights here about who God is and what he's done for us that, that I want to highlight this morning. And the first is that the God we worship is the living God. In the first part of his speech, Paul points the philosophers to the living God. He never really mentions Israel or Judaism at all. Instead, he speaks of God as creator of the entire universe and everything in it. He's not a national God confined to a certain people or a certain place. He is the God of all people and of all creation. Psalm 19 verses 1 through 2 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech, and night after night they reveal knowledge. See, God created the universe, and creation itself shouts his praises. I was a physics major in college before I, I switched and started to pursue ministry full time. And, and the thing I loved about science and physics was, was that the more I studied, the more I learned about creation and how it all worked and how it all fit together, the more in awe of God I became. See, many people think that, that the sciences, they drive people away from the faith, but I had the exact opposite experience. 
The more I learned about God and his creation, excuse me, the more I learned about creation, the more I was in awe of the creator. And it drove me to, to have a deeper appreciation of who God is and, and what he's done for us. Paul also here states that, that Jesus is, is the Lord of heaven and earth. In other words, he is in charge. He is the ultimate authority. He doesn't need us or anything from us. He does not live in temples built by human hands, nor reside in statues that are made of wood or metal or stone. Humans did not create God, and he cannot be confined within our human structures. God reminds us this in Psalm 50. He said, I have no need of a bull from your stall or goats from your pens, for every animal of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and the insects in the fields are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all that is in it. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? See, God, he doesn't need us. He's not dependent on our sacrifices or our churches or anything like that for his sustenance. God exists completely independent and outside of his creation. And yet, and here's the amazing thing, God still chooses to give us life. God chooses to provide for us even though we don't deserve it. He gives us life. He is the author and sustainer of it, as, and, and he is the one who gives us breath in our lungs. Every morning we wake up as a gift from him. What a contrast with the idols that are found throughout this city. Idols by nature are mute and deaf and dumb. They can do nothing for us. They're not truly God's. And yet we bow down and we worship them and we, we sacrifice to them and, and we, we give up our resources and our time and our energy to appease them so that we can hope to get something in return. And again, we may think this whole idea of idol worship is some silly farce for an old time, but, but we do the same thing, don't we? We, down and, we bow down and we worship our own idols. They may not be made of wood or stone or precious metal, but we sacrifice at the altar of money and power and pleasure of our own identity. We give up our time and our money to pursue things that we think will make us happy. And no, that is no different than the idol worship that Paul is talking about here. Whenever we try to find our purpose or identity, anything other than Christ will be sorely disappointed. He alone is the giver and sustainer of life. Everything else falls tragically short. Whatever happiness or benefit we gain from seeking after those other things is temporary at best. We will always, they will always leave us empty and wanting more because they can't give us what we truly need. Only Jesus can do that. Paul explains here that there's a reason for it all. The purpose that God, the purpose that, that Paul gives for God providing and sustaining life is that in doing so we might be drawn to Him. How amazing is that? God, if God didn't reveal himself to us, then by through nature, through, through the scriptures, and ultimately through his son, Jesus Christ, we would be lost. We'd have no hope of escaping sin and would remain separated from God forever. Our sinful nature, to which all of us are subject, it creates a barrier between us and God. Yet because of the grace and mercy that God gives us, he reveals himself to us so that we might turn to him. And when we do, we realize that God isn't so far off after all. For many of us, we have this picture of God as an old grumpy man looking down on us from some cloud up in heaven. He's cold, he's distant, he's uncaring, but that's not the God of the Bible at all. The God of Scripture cares deeply about his creation. He hears the cries and the prayers of his people, and he has not abandoned us. 
In fact, he came in the person of Jesus Christ to live, to die, and to live again in order to rescue us. He sends his Holy Spirit to live within his people. You see, God isn't far away at all. He is right here in this very room. He's within the hearts of his people. And that's a major difference between Christ and these, and these false idols. You have to give something in order to appease an idol. You have to sacrifice your time, your money, your resources, like I said. And in doing so, you hope that they'll be happy enough to do what you want them to do. But the gospel is a different story. In this story, nothing we can ever do is good enough. We can never do enough right to earn God's love. But that's exactly the point. See, God himself has, has through Jesus, sought us out. He's come and he's rescued his people. And he offered the only sacrifice that could satisfy it. He took our sin and shame upon Jesus on the cross. And he gives us his righteousness. God came and rescued us. You see, idols are all about what you can do for them. The gospel is all about what God has already done for us. John three sixteen and 17 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. That's the good news, that God made himself known in order to rescue us from our sin. And finally, he encourages us to repent. God has made himself known in order that we might know him, but now we must respond. In grace, God extended his hand of salvation to us, and we must take hold of it. Paul tells the philosophers in Athens that God has overlooked ignorance in the past, but now he commands people everywhere to repent. The fact that God chose to overlook their ignorance is a blessing. And honestly, he overlooks our ignorance as well. Second Peter chapter 3, verses 8-9 through 9 says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. His patience means he is giving us an opportunity to repent of our ignorance and turn to him. See, repentance is a key word in Scripture. It's more than just simple sorrow. It's more than just knowing about God or knowing that he exists. But it's about, it's more than that. Repentance is knowledge, belief, and sorrow for sin, but it's also doing something about it. It's taking that knowledge and belief about God and taking the step to trust him with your life. Repentance is godly sorrow, where you're not just sorry for breaking the rules, but you're sorry that you broke God's heart. And it's that godly sorrow that then leads to repentance. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, he tells us about, Paul tells us about that. He says, For you became sorrowful as God intended, so that you were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. That's the kind of godly sorrow that we need. Sorrow for our sin, sorrow that we have broken God's heart, and sorrow that ultimately leads to repentance and not guilt. See, ultimately, repentance is about turning away from our sin and those things that separate us from God. And turning towards Christ. It's about putting aside our worthless idols and finding our meaning and our purpose in Him alone. And what assurance does God give us? Paul says here that the resurrection is the key. If Jesus rose from the dead, then he really is the Son of God. And all the things that he claimed, including the forgiveness of our sins, are true. That's why the cross and, and Easter Sunday are the focal points of our faith. Jesus paid the price for our sins, and his resurrection assures us of eternal life. 
So like Paul, I urge all of us to repent. We need to turn away from our idols, turn aside from anything that holds us back and takes our focus off of Christ and turn to him. The living God has made himself known and given us life so that we could seek him out. And let's do that today. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for your word. And I thank you that you have given us life and that you have drawn us to yourself through Christ. And I pray that that we would not take that for granted, but turn from our sin and turn towards you. It's in Christ we pray. Amen. Can we do the first verse of of our final hymn? We're going to I encourage you to stand and join us as we sing the first verse of number 477, Stand Up for Jesus. seated. In a few moments, we're going to share communion together. And communion reminds us that God sought us out. In love, he sent his son Jesus to rescue us from our sins. And the bread, of the, the bread and the cup reveal the great lengths that Jesus went to redeem us. He gave up his own body to be broken. He shed his own blood so that our sin could be forgiven. And communion is a reminder of both his death on the cross and his glorious resurrection. Because he lives, we also will live. And we will celebrate his glory at the wedding supper of the Lamb. Communion also reminds us of our need to repent. Jesus paid a high price for you and for me. It cost him everything. And we don't have to earn it because he already has. All you need to do is receive this gift by grace, of grace by faith. As you take communion, take a moment to reflect on how you have sinned how you have fallen short and don't deserve God's grace. And then praise God and thank Him that through Christ you have been forgiven and are welcomed into His family. Commit to turn away from your sin and turn toward Christ. As Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, I've received from the Lord what I also pass on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night He was betrayed, took bread, and when He given thanks, He broke it and said, This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Whenever you drink it, do so in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So all you have received, Jesus Christ, as your Lord and Messiah, we encourage you to take this holy sacrament to your comfort.
the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was broken for you. Take and eat, knowing that he died for you. blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was shed for you, that our sins could be forgiven, a new covenant that was made in his blood, take and drink for the forgiveness of sins. Would you pray with me?
Father God, we are so grateful of the love that you have shown us through your son, Jesus Christ, and through the presence of your Holy Spirit. I pray that that as we take this bread and take this cup, Lord, you would you would fill us with your love and your goodness and your grace. Lord, we are truly sorry for the things that we have done that have that have separated us from you, the sin in our lives, Lord, that has created a barrier between between you and us Lord, a holy, perfect God and, and, and a creation marred by sin. Lord, thank you that through Jesus Christ, that sin has been forgiven, that we have been restored, and that we have now have access, Lord, to, to, to you and to be in your family. And so, Lord, we are so grateful, and I pray that as we go from this place, you would, you would fill us and dwell us with your Holy Spirit so that we can live lives out of response to what you've done for us. Lord, help us to, to love as you have loved us. Help us to, to forgive as you have forgiven us, and help us to show mercy if you have, as you have shown us mercy. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Amen. Go in peace.